0: My name's Kevin. If you are new, we're so glad that you are here. Um, we're in the middle of a series entitled Peter, A Living Hope. And today, what I'd like to do is finish up a three-part series that I've entitled uh, Fiercely Faithful. And we've gone through three different parts that I'd like to review. I sometimes get uh, criticized, critiqued for ha- using big words and um, big concepts and ideas and stuff. And that's definitely going to be true today. I heard from the email Uh, that the title was teleology, and I heard from some of you that you had to look that word up. So my apologies for that. Um, Hopefully after today, that will be much more accessible and agreeable to you. So one of the disclaimers is, because I look for these big ideas, and I'm constantly trying to draw on the most kind of profound and foundational concepts that I, I see in the text and in our tradition that match well with what we understand about social history and psychology and stuff like that, I am fully cognizant that what I'm going to share today is incomplete and inadequate to the task of the full scope of what Peter is doing in there. Uh, Slaves, you should submit to your masters. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. Children, you should do everything and obey your parents in all things. These are passages uh, that are going to come up. Let's close in prayer. Okay, amen. Um, These are these are passages that are found in our text that are incredibly intricate and complicated. And What I'm trying to do is provide for you a framework for understanding the argument that is happening in the text, not to give you the answer for what those texts mean for you and your faith. So I'm just trying to provide that foundation. So we went through identity and fidelity today. We're going to talk about teleology. Uh, the next couple of weeks, pastors Tom and Omer will address more specifically what does that slavery passage mean here in 1 Peter chapter 3, as well as other passages, and what does wives submit to your husbands actually mean in the context of this letter, and does it have any application for today? So they're going to take care of that in the next couple of weeks. Today, what I'd like to do is just finish up the foundational work that I attempted to uh, provide for us, some provocations and some thoughts in that particular direction, okay? So that's my disclaimer. Uh, if there's things like, you're going to say, but what about you would be absolutely correct in asking that question. Uh, I ask that of myself all the time. And so this is a place and a kind of community and culture that I hope, for those of you who've been around long enough, know you are absolutely welcome. You're not, no, no, no. You're not welcome to ask questions. It is required. To, To journey along in a faith requires questions. It doesn't Like, oh, it's nice that you have them. No, it requires it, mandates, demands that you do. Because these are not simple answers to very simple problems. They are complex, morally thought-out responses to very complex and intricate problems. Okay? So, we've gone over the first couple verses in 1 Peter, and now we're going to dive into verse 11 of chapter two. And again, right after this this passage that we're gonna read it comes the slaves and the the wives passage. So uh, just, just hold your seat for a couple of weeks, because we're gonna get there. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may align malign you as evildoers they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, be subject to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. This sounds very familiar to a Romans 13 passage that was used in a political party most recently when it came to immigration at, at the border. So these passages still have relevance and application to our day because they are still being drawn upon to pull out moral principles to apply to very real people's lives. So that's why this, is, this study and, and this kind of engagement is really important, why you are fantastic people for joining us in that dream. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people. That's a key phrase there. As servants of God, live as free people. Yet, do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. A couple weeks ago, I proposed that the argument that Peter is making is one of identity. Identity. They are in a foreign land, a land that they call Babylon, which is the preeminent archetypal name that they give to a foreign place that does not adhere to your core values. So when you live in those places, all of the stuff, the technology, the building seduces you and confuses you as to who you really are in this world. That's the nature of what a culture does. So how do you maintain your sense of identity? Remember who you are. Tell yourself the story once again, over and over and over, that you are chosen, that you are destined, that you have been washed, sanctified, and there's the religious language in the blood of Jesus. After that, I suggested that what Peter was arguing is that you maintain a sense of fidelity, and this isn't just faithfulness to all a moral code, it is fidelity to the people and to the story, and that's why he talks about the ancestors, the prophets, the the priests, uh, the poets. He refers to them and say, listen, They were talking about you, they were trying to give you encouragement, and we could probably say the same thing, which is why we study these texts, because they are giving you today encouragement and help and hope. And because they were living stones, they propped up and they live that kind of life, so you too are now to be those kind of living stones that are faithful to the ancestors and also faithful to each other. And to recognize that the life that you live is a testimony. That is the testimony to who Jesus is, to who God is. So that when people see you, they go, what happened here? Tell me more. And you are to be built together into a spiritual household. No longer is the temple the central focus for what is holy and righteous and good. You are. That is fidelity. Today... I'd like to talk about teleology and the argument that I think Peter is making here that is one of the most profound and life-changing perspectives that is one of the most simple ideas that exists. In fact, this is so simple, I'm almost embarrassed to share it with you. But again, I'm banking on this principle that people just simply need to be reminded much more than they need to be instructed. Teleology is summed up in these two ideas. First, know your why. Second, then you can know how. That's simple. That's all you need to know. First, what is your why? Then you can figure out the how. Several years ago, Danielle and I uh, had a wonderful privilege of traveling in Greece. And this was right at the beginning where we were studying the foreign languages or the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you're learning a foreign language, and all of a sudden you're in a local place that speaks that language natively, it's fun. It's just, I can read the signs. Well, I can read the Greek above the signs, right? I, it's, it's, that, um, it's, it's just fun. And so I was having a great time. Uh, don't drive in Greece. It is insane, it's like a suicide mission. There, there was a two-lane highway and there was one moment where somebody was passing me on the, the left and passing me on the right, coming onward of another person, there were five of us in this two-lane highway and we, it, was, it was insane. At one particular point in the driving, we were coming across a bridge and we were studying biblical Greek and we were learning about all these terms. And at the end of the bridge, I see this word. And I got, I cannot tell you how excited I was. Like, if you're going to, like a kid in a candy, I know, it's geeky. I'm such a nerd. I'm so sorry. This is just who I am. But I see this word at the end of the bridge, and I think, there it is. And I was driving, so I didn't get a picture of it. So this is just Photoshop. Anyway, (laughs) I see the word telos, or telos, uh, depending upon your pronunciation, and I thought to myself, there it is. This thing that I've been studying about telos is there at the end of the bridge. The point of that sign was to tell you that you had come to the end of the bridge, the telos of the bridge. And I thought, this is my entire Bible right here in this moment. And all of you are going, what the heck are you talking about? So let's talk about this. The word telos or telos in Greek just simply means A design, a goal, an end, or an aim. So if you look up the definition of that word, it is what is the thing that you are aiming for, the goal for which you are trying to strive. This is very controversial in biology. For those of you who know about biology and study that, is biology fundamentally teleological? Is it going somewhere or is it just happenstance? That's one of the philosophical arguments in biology. Is there a design? Is there some sort of goal end, or aim? That word telos gets translated into your Bible multiple times to mean things like perfection, maturity, completion, fulfillment, or outcome. Multiple times you'll see these different words, and behind those words in your Bible is the word telos. When something good comes to its ultimate fruition that is telos. When the aim has been fulfilled, that is telos. A very simple, easy way to summarize this is telos means purpose. What is the thing? What is the why that you are doing it? Why? What was the whole point of the matter? Telos meaning purpose. Now, this can be illustrated a couple ways. In philosophy, they have these conversations all the time About teleology, teleology, of course, being telos and logos, meaning the study of or the logic of the design, the aim or the goal. If I were to ask you the question, why does the water boil? What would you say? Depending upon your posture, your position, you would say a variety of different types of things. If you're in chemistry or physics, you would say, well, there's a certain temperature that the molecules heated up to that caused them to bounce off of one another, and then, of course, transition from a liquid form into a gaseous form. Would you be correct? Yeah. Although some of you would explain that far better than I would at that particular point. Why does the water boil? A teleological explanation of why the water boils is, I want tea. Or, no, not coffee, tea. I don't want coffee, Monica. I want tea. (laughs) Uh, This is a teleological explanation for why does the water boil. There is a different aim or a different goal. Now let's add a third layer to this. Why is the water boiling? I'm sick. We are in this philosophical line of argumentation you take something that is, and you layer onto it multiple layers of explanation that give you the purpose, the aim, the goal, the thing for which you are striving. And so if you were to ask the question, why does the water boil, you would say any of those things and they would all be part of its purpose. And we are the kind of people that if we do not have this, and we're only left with the physics, we're lost. Teleology is a core, fundamental idea of what it means to be human. And we frequently lose this because of a variety of factors. Again, insufficient and inadequate, but that's another philosophical point to discuss. Telos is the idea that you first ask the question, Why? Why is the water actually, why are we here? What are we doing this for? What is the aim, the purpose, the goal? That is the most important thing that you do when studying teleology. This idea of aim, goal, and purpose is applied to a variety of different applications. One of the most um, prominent ones, many of you know the author Simon Sinek and his leadership Uh, ideas and philosophies and he's written this wonderful book entitled start with why where he talks about a variety of different movements and leadership situations and circumstances and he has articulated what he calls the golden circle i'm not sure if he came up with this it is something that you'll see in a variety of different places the main argument is very simple again it's simple start with your why If you wanna do a civil rights movement and make a cultural transformation, don't start with legislation. Don't start with the how or the what. Start with the why. If you want to aim for a particular project, if you're a part of a company in Silicon Valley, don't start with the technology, start with the why. Some companies in our area are known for this kind of thinking. This can be applied personally to other kinds of means. Uh, Many years ago, when I was learning how to do public speaking, uh, Ken Davis was one of those uh, authors and speakers who was very influential, helpful in kind of guiding the process. And he tells this story about how he loved to go and speak to young people. It was part of his uh, calling, and he enjoyed it. And he realized that his effectiveness started to decline. And he was trying to ask the question, what's going on? I'm funny, I'm articulate, I'm engaging, etc. And what he would talk about is something had happened to his why. It had shifted, and this was so profound for me. When you first start to do something where you're influencing other people, there is this kind of sense that you want to do it because you care deeply about the people. You want them to grow, you want them to learn, you want them to know. But something happens when people give you applauses and tell you that they like you, and tell you that they loved your talk. The why for him shifted from being, I wanna make a difference in these kids' lives, to I hope they like me at the end. And as soon as that why shifted, everything changed. And as soon as he became aware of it, it changed again. Once you understand that, that why, that ultimate aim, that telos, changes, it changes everything. Teleology can also be applied to pain and suffering. This is a really core concept. How many of you work out? And how many of you participate in the destruction of your cellular biology? (laughs) This is what you do. You endure pain and suffering, oftentimes at lengthy periods of time. Most of us would probably very readily admit it is not pleasurable. But the reason why you do this is because you have a why. Whether that's health, whether that's. never mind. <laughs> you have a why. And the why gives you the ability to endure the what. How many of you go to a doctor? or a dentist, or sit in that chair and endure that kind of H-E double hockey sticks. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, come on, it's the dentist. Nobody wants to do that. But again, you do. Because there's an aim, there's a goal. There is some sort of purpose that you want to fulfill. That is to not Die of a disease of your teeth, which is what happened to a lot of humans throughout history. Telos, of course, can be applied to all of our technologies. This is one of my favorite ones. This is what I don't know why um, Ray would do this. One miles this is at Cookie the Monster. Take the third exit. Oh, oh boy! Let's count to three. It's, and then, it's at interesting. The roundup, I, I was Take listening to this over and over and over again. I was going through, like, do there's Darth one. Vader and there's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. Right? there's right? They got all of these voices. And, and I thought to myself, I, I would... Uh, the, the end goal for me would be to throw my phone out the window if I had to listen to that every time Waze was talking to me. It was, it's a little... Uh, you, bear, you bear your own suffering, your own cross, however you so like to do. Uh, but GPS, Waze, all of this is part of teleology. I am going somewhere, there's a map, there's an aim, there's a destination. This is teleology, my friends. And again, I I feel in some ways very embarrassed because it's like such a simple thing. Know what your why is, know what your purpose is. But in my life, working in church, doing some minimal business and leadership consulting, I will tell you, it is often very, very hard to identify what is the real reason why you exist, what your aim is. What are you trying to do? What is it that you actually want? That is actually a very hard question because all these other things are just so um, distracting. Well, I want to get rich. Is that what you really want? Well, for some people it might actually be, but for a lot of people, the why is much deeper than that, and trying to find that is actually very complicated. I think teleology is extremely important and incredibly applicable when it comes to pain and suffering and evil in the world. And this is where it gets really, really down to the nitty-gritty. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And all of these situations and circumstances cause us to recognize that the why becomes incredibly more important depending upon what kind of situation that we're in. When we're working out, that's one kind of situation. When we're at ways, that's another kind of situation. When we're boiling water, that's a different kind of situation. But if you're, for example, in the Roman Empire, if you are an inmate in the Holocaust, if you are suffering at the hands of an unjust judicial system, this situation becomes incredibly more important to focus in on what your why. And and what a situation is is just simply the environment that you're in and the time projection of the life that you're going to live within what particular time frame. And when you're in those situations, it becomes incredibly more important and incredibly more difficult to figure out why. But it's incredibly critical Many of you are probably already guessing that I'm referring to Viktor Frankl's incredible book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he documents and talks about from a psychological and existential perspective, what is it that caused certain people to survive the Holocaust versus other people who succumbed? And he writes extensively about various ways and perspectives, he talks about logotherapy, but the idea of purpose becomes central to his thesis, at such a moment, it is not the physical pain which hurts the most, and this applies to adults as much as to punish children. It is the mental agony caused by the injustice, the unreasonableness of it all. But what about human liberty, he asks. We can answer these questions from experience as well as on principle. The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I mean, this is an incredible piece of writing about the will to meaning and purpose. And in one of the most darkest, most heinous instances in our history, to write about purpose, choosing attitude, choosing direction and mindset, as the superhuman superpower to overcome is profoundly moving and speaks to not just some sort of nicety or business strategy of to why, but speaks to the deep power and essence and necessity of us as humans to identify what is our purpose and to do so even in the darkest of circumstances and situations. So my friends, that's a little bit of an introduction to teleology. What is your why? What is your purpose? And in the midst of this kind of a world, where the peace of Rome, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, comes as a result of the suppression of everybody else who rises up, where power and empire murder and put down anybody who is, in, uh, who is against Rome, a hierarchical system where people are on top and some people are on the bottom. And to disrupt that hierarchy would be an offense to the culture and to the people. In a place where all the gods and the goddesses ought to be worshipped, they should be venerated. And if you don't and something, happens, something bad happens to our culture, you might be the problem because you upset the gods. And we didn't talk about this extensively, but 1 Peter was most likely written somewhere in the mid-60s AD, right at the time of one of the worst, most heinous emperors, Nero. This, my friends, is the situation in the context that we talked about why identity is so important and fidelity to a community of people. But now we're going to add to that what is it that that fidelity and that identity and that community give you? It gives you a very clear why. And before we even get to why you should submit, and he even talks about, I mean, he says it. I can't believe in your Bible is a phrase that says, honor the emperor. That makes no sense to me. That's against all sensibilities Theologically, principally, philosophically, you don't honor the emperor. That's idolatry. The emperor is 100% against Jesus, against God, all sorts of crazy things there. So when Peter says honor the emperor, he's not saying that's what you should do, he's providing a far more in depth argument for what outcome we are trying to achieve. And honoring the emperor and slaves submitting to masters and wives to husbands is one of those ways in this context. That's that world. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage against the soul. Don't forget, you're not in charge. You are a foreigner in this land, you are exiled. You are not at home. That is part of your situational awareness. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. And here it is. So that. So that. Though they may align you as evildoers. So we have some indication here that there are some people that are speaking heinously against the Christians. They may see your honorable deeds and glorify God. This teleological end is core and central to the vast majority of the arguments you're going to find in the New Testament. The aim, the goal, is so that you will have a kind of reputation that is honorable among the foreign people that you are with, and by the life that you live as living stones, they will glorify God. And all of that is connected to the grander story of what Jesus was attempting to do in this world that we read in the Gospels, which is why this is an inadequate, insufficient talk, because I am trying to pull in hundreds and hundreds of ideas into this one place. For the Lord's sake, and here it is, be subject to every human authority, including the emperor and including the governors. This makes no sense. But it does make sense if you understand, for it is God's will, that by doing right, because honoring the emperor is what seems to be what is right in the eyes of these pagan people, doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. These Christians are stupid and inane, and they are a horrible stain on the Roman Empire. These are part of, if you read some of the historical records, these are some of the things that are talked about of Christians during that time. We should get rid of them. Part of the reason why Nero is a problem, is like, okay, I found a way to get rid of them. I'll burn down my palace and then blame them. It is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. Now this does not mean that you are a doormat for people to walk on. As, a, as servants of God, live as free people. That line is stunning in the midst of this. You are to live as free people because that is who you are. This is so much in line with what Viktor Frankl wrote. You're in the concentration camp. You are bound by the powers that be. But you can live as free people. No one can take away from you your will to meaning and purpose. No one. So live as free people. He says this right after he says honor the emperor. And some, right, this, this, do you see the tension here? And that's why you honor everybody. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. My friends, I would like to propose to you that what is happening here in this first Peter passage is not a commandment, which is one of the problems that people have when they read these Bible texts. The Bible is after all the word of God, God's word says this, therefore women, just keep it quiet. Slaves, just submit. This is what happened during the Civil War. There was a theological crisis because the Bible says this, and we should support this. But these are not commandments. If you read carefully about what's going on, and the entirety of the context and the subtext, this is a strategy. I want you to have such a good reputation amongst these folks, that when they criticize you, they will have nothing to stand on. And when they see how you live, they will see you like living stones, go, what is that about? And they will glorify your Heavenly Father. Teleologically, it is a means and an end, it is the way to live with and for a purpose. I hope I'm not overstating this. I feel like this is brilliant. In the midst of a Roman Empire, in a Greco-Roman culture, where Christians are clearly the minority, not adhering to the cultural norms of their day would definitely put them on the outs and would definitely lead them to become persecuted folks, which they did. And so in that situational awareness context, Peter is saying, You get to choose a why. Here's how to live as free people to compel others to glorify God. And if you pay attention to what's going on in those passages, this is the aim. In many ways, what is happening here is a setup to the question as a Christian, what do you do when you live here? Which is what we talked about three weeks ago. And the answer to that question is summarized in the strategy, if you first know your why, you can accomplish anyhow. Know what that why is, and you will be able to live in the Greco-Roman Empire successfully, glorifying God, and being able to bring the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about on earth. Again, I want to go into the next 200 years of history, because they did it. I mean, that's, that's the stunning, nonsensical thing about the first 300 years of Christianity. Jesus was a nobody. These Christians were persecuted on the edge. As far as the Roman Empire was concerned, they didn't exist. And these first followers of Jesus did this. And 200 years later, almost 50% of the empire is Christian. So much so that the emperors of that very same Roman Empire are having to deal with it and they become Christians themselves. I mean, that is historically stunning to me. And what you have in your text are the trails of evidence for how they did it. And 1 Peter is one of those. In addition to 1 Corinthians and Timothy, etc. That's what you have in your New Testament. Of course, this entire program is founded upon somebody who did it. maybe three decades before Peter writes, his master, his teacher, died upon a cross, inaugurating and initiating a crisis, a situational awareness crisis of figuring out what it is that we do. Of course, you know the story of the resurrection, and it launched into an entire movement. One of the last words that Jesus says on the cross, does anybody remember? Remember? It is finished. In Greek, it is the word, teteleste, from the root word, telos. In other words, I did it. This was my aim. This was my goal. This was my purpose. Nobody wants to die at the hands of the Roman Empire. Nobody wants to succumb to that kind of suffering. But if you know your why, you can endure almost any how. So last week uh, I shared a message, and I I'm I'm so sorry. I'm going to call you out personally. Patty and Eric are like the greatest gifts to Spark. I love them. I that was not in my notes. I just just. well, so, so, so Eric sent me this, this message, and, and I was very humbled, and I was very grateful. And I did ask permission, so don't worry, I won't put up your emails unless I have your permission. Kevin, <laughs> so. So I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Sunday's message. You made it so clear, the profoundness of the temple and the symbol of presence. And then connected that to us as being stones in the spiritual temple. I've been familiar with these concepts most of my life, but the way you presented it and tied it all together really got me thinking. That's the part I like, really got me thinking. That's, that's, that's who we are. I love it. Really got me thinking. It seems odd to say this, having been involved in church all my life, (laughs) but I've never thought of myself as being part of something bigger than myself. It's like this is a new, untapped area of my faith. Oh, God. I I put that in a drink and drink it every single day (laughs) of my life. (laughs) That's what Y gives you. That's what that purpose gives you. You are. This whole Jesus thing is not what some sociologists have called moralistic therapeutic deism, the idea that you're just supposed to be a good person, that it's supposed to make you feel better about your life, and that God is there only when you need him. This is about something so much bigger. And part of the... Part of the delinquency of modern Christianity is that in many ways we've forgotten the why. We've completely forgotten it. And if you have any questions about what in the world is going on with Christianity in 21st century America, I would propose one of the ways to think about it is we've completely forgotten the why. Love God, love your neighbor, do justice, compassion, mercy, all the things that Jesus talked about. Which is why we at Spark try, we try very, very hard, and one of our core values is the reputation of God. Because we gotta get that right. And if you know that, well then we can take care of all the other stuff. Then we can figure out how to do it. But it is so much bigger than what happens here. Yes, yes, yes. So much bigger than just yourself. So that, my friends, is teleology. First, know your why, and if you can know your why, and Peter and the gospel writers and Jesus and our New Testament tell us multiple times over what that why is. To glorify God, to bring the kingdom, to establish justice and mercy, to bring that kind of salvation to the world. To love deeply, profoundly, transformatively love the world. Your enemies and your friends. And if you know that, then you can know why or how or what to do. People question Spark all the time. So why do you do this? Why are you that? This seems weird, this seems odd. Okay, we're a little odd and quirky. And I use words like teleology in a sermon, which you should probably never do. Okay, I understand that. That's fine. Part of the reason is we have worked hard to try to identify very, very clearly what that why is. We are trying to inspire you all and the world to live the way of Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. We see that manifested in making sure that God's reputation is cared for and tended to. We make sure that we bring rescue to the world. We make sure that when there's brokenness, we reconcile. And when there's this desperate absence of hope in death, we believe that new life can actually come up out of the grave. And all of that is summed up in loving God and loving people. We've preached about that, talked about that, and you all have lived that. And if you ever wanna ask the question, well then why does Spark do this? That is why. Why do you work with refugees? That is why. Why are you so welcoming and open and affirming? That is why. Why do you talk about racism? That is why. And when you know that, why transforms everything that you do. We're going to shift into our time of communion. And I hope, my friends, that as you partake in these elements, you are reminded once again of the central person, event, teaching that got us all here in the first place. We do need to be reminded far more than we need to be instructed, which is why we say the prayer every single week, why we take communion every week, because we're trying to remind ourselves, this is why, this is why, this is why. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it. Why? In remembrance of me. My friends, every single one of you are welcome to this table. As Pastor Daniel says, this is not our table. It is Christ's table. And Christ invites and welcomes you all. As we sing, please come.